And so I wrote this article in Dutch 10 years ago, which was called um, The Most Important History Lesson You Were Never Taught. And it was basically about how if governments accumulate debt to a level where it's unsustainable, eventually uh, that can lead to hyperinflation. And so back then I thought it was scary, but now I'm even more scared because the analogies are just, I think, piling up. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and CypherTrace. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, June 26th, and today I have a really excellent conversation with Tour de Meester from Adamant Capital about how major historical events from the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century to the French Revolution can actually help us understand the moment we're living through now. Before that, however, the brief. First up on the brief, consumer spending rebound. So what happened? Spending increased 8.2% between April and May as per a report from the Commerce Department. This is the largest increase since record-keeping began in 1959. So obviously this is great news, right? A great sign for that pent-up demand that we were all hoping for. The problem right now is that it's only part of the story. Household incomes during the same period fell 4.2% as stimulus money started to fade, and most importantly, infections are up in 33 states. Texas and Florida have both paused reopening plans as they deal with this. And realistically, the only thing that matters ultimately is what the balance or equilibrium of battling the virus and getting back to economic normal we can find. So this is a good sign, and we should be buoyed by it, but we should also be cautious because it was from April to May, and we're dealing right now with June going into July and things looking bad again. Next on the brief, the regulatory regime comes to crypto. So what happened? Two different stories in two parts of the world. First, the EU is planning a new regulatory framework for cryptos, including stricter requirements for global stablecoins like Libra. This came from a speech from the former Prime Minister of Latvia, who is now the EU's lead economics minister. In the US, meanwhile, the sordid tale of Telegram sale has finally come to an end. The SEC has settled with Telegram, who will be expected to pay $18.5 million in fines, as well as $1.22 billion in disgorgements to investors over the next three years. So why do these stories matter? They are yet one more reminder that as long as crypto continues to persist, the more that it will be brought into the regulatory fold. And there's good and bad about that. The bad is that there are significant constraints on innovation that come from regulation, especially when it's putting old regulatory frameworks on new types of technology. The flip side is that the lack of clarity has created a real stumbling block for lots of entrepreneurs who want to build interesting things. And so Hopefully the upshot of this is that the clarity creates opportunity. I believe that you'll still see really interesting regulatory arbitrage opportunities happen around the world, particularly to the extent that we get more multipolar power rather than a unipolar world that we've kind of been living in now. Last up on the brief today, a warning from legendary investor Jim Rogers. So what happened? Another one of those uber-famous investors has made comments on Bitcoin and digital assets in general, and unfortunately, unlike Paul Tudor Jones, this one is not as bullish. 
In an interview with a Japanese publication, he said that if cryptocurrency succeeds as real money rather than as the subject of gambling as it is today, the government will make the cryptocurrency illegal and eliminate it. He goes on to argue his point that basically, if anything is a threat to government money, it will be shut down. He says, the government likes electronic money because with electronic money, you can track when, where, and who spent and what amount. Governments will have more control over people through electronic money. The government wants to know everything. Controllable electronic money will survive, and virtual currencies beyond the influence of the government will be erased. Now, finally, he gave his rather pessimistic view of cryptocurrencies now and said, I believe that the virtual currency represented by Bitcoin will decline and eventually become zero. This is a clear bubble, and I don't know the right price. Virtual currency is not an investment target. It's just gambling. So why is this important to know? Well, I believe we can take this two ways. The first is the way that I've seen a lot of Bitcoin Twitter take it, which is, screw this guy, he's just a relic from the past. And I do think that to some extent, this represents an old way of looking at things. He even at one point makes reference to the fact that the difference between virtual currencies backed by governments and not is that governments have guns, which is a very sort of 20th century view of the world. But the second way that we can take it is that he thinks a lot like a lot of the folks in government think. And I actually believe this to be true. I actually do think it's worth being cognizant of the threats from governments who want to pick a real fight with Bitcoin, who want to make the on-ramps and off-ramps illegal, who want to really try to tamp this down. We can scream all we want about self-sovereign technology, and certainly as technologies go, the infrastructure around Bitcoin is getting nothing but more robust. And I'm not even one of those people who thinks that any one government or any coalition of governments could shut it down. But the reality is, for a huge number of people who interact with this asset, a full frontal assault from a government, especially one like the US, could be a serious detriment and a serious setback. So when we see someone who seems to reflect a point of view that many in government do, it's worth paying attention even if we don't like it. Ultimately, the question is, will governments surrender their monopoly on money? And that is a pretty open question in my book. It also brings us perfectly to our main conversation today with Tur de Meester. Tur de Meester is the founding partner of Adamant Capital and has long been one of the leading voices in the Bitcoin space. He got started writing a newsletter advising people about it and has continued to write and bring a really interesting and diverse set of perspectives to the space. One of the things that Tur and I share is a real strong affinity for history. And in particular, looking to history to try to understand what we're living through, to try to see where historical analogies might apply. A few months ago, Tur's firm put out a report called the Bitcoin Reformation, which makes a parallel between the time that we're living through now and the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. More recently, Tur has been looking at the French Revolution, and in particular, the hyperinflation around the French Revolution that happened as another parallel that could be reflective of our current time. In this conversation, we use the framework of his Bitcoin Reformation paper and the parallels there to explore not just the historical analogy, but really to use as a jumping off point for a much wider exploration of Bitcoin in the world today. If there is a single theme, as you'll see, it's the idea of monopoly power and how, whether it's governments or corporations, it tends to sow the seeds of its own destruction. As with all long interviews on The Breakdown, this is edited only very slightly, so I hope you enjoy it. All right, I am back here with Tur. Hey, thanks so much for spending some time today. Oh, happy to be here, Nathaniel. So I thought that what would be really fun, you and I had been talking about this a little bit, is one thing that you and I share is a, a real interest in 
uh, history, I think for its own sake, but also in the context of how it helps us understand and explain or or just at least make sense of current events. And you've been one of the more thoughtful uh, folks in putting together some historical context for some of the things we're seeing now with Bitcoin and the economy more broadly. So what I thought could be fun is to maybe uh, dive into some of the historical moments that you've taken lessons from in the context of Bitcoin and, and today's economy uh, and, and go into them in a little bit more depth uh, and just sort of explore from there. Yeah, it sounds great. So let's talk about the Reformation. You guys put out this big uh, paper earlier this year about a historical analogy with Bitcoin and the Reformation. And you said in the introduction, the 21st century emergence of Bitcoin, encryption, the internet, and millennials are more than just trends. They herald a wave of change that exhibits similar dynamics as the 16th and 17th century revolution that took place in Europe. And I really want to get into this a little bit. So maybe you could give first a brief background on the Reformation. Reformation. I mean, you know, the, the two second version, what happened for those who just haven't spent any time with it? And then we could maybe get into the, the comparisons in terms of these, the four preconditions of a Reformation. Yeah, sure. I mean, for me to talk about what happened, of course, it's going to, it's going to reveal some of the ways that I think about history in general, or like, you know, what I think are the biggest catalysts. So it's always a bit, you know, if even if I give you like the 32nd elevator pitch about, you know, what was the Reformation, a lot of people probably still disagree. But but I would I would say that one of the major um, kind of realities uh, of even the Middle Ages, all the way until the start of the Reformation was that there was this monopolistic service provider, and that was the Catholic Church. And gradually, that institution became kind of more and more bloated. And uh, it started, like, the, the tax pressure that it was exerting on, on people all around Europe was really increasing and weighing on people. And and at the same time, um, in that period, especially the, the, the early 1500s, uh, the printing press made a huge difference in that um, all of a sudden the production of ideas and the proliferation of ideas was kind of unbundled. And, and, and all of a sudden for um, instead of having to pay a year's wage to buy a book, you could buy a book for the price of a chicken. Like that's what, what happened in that hundred years. So that was a massive revolution. Uh, and then, of course, also uh, the structure of trade started to change around Europe, whereas, you know, before the main source of wealth was working the land, that shifted towards commanding the oceans and the waters and, and, and obviously the spice trade. But then gradually with the discovery of the Americas, like it just became a much, much bigger um, slice of the economic pie. And so with that came this new economic class that that don't, didn't necessarily agree but with paying so much taxes to the Catholic Church. So that's kind of, you know, what everything came to a, a head in the, in the 1500s where people just basically refused to um, play the game anymore. And they just wanted to, you know, have a more direct relation with God. Like it wasn't like people turned into atheists all of a sudden. But, but more and more this idea started taking hold of like, well – you know, we like reading things in our own language. Like, can't we read the Bible ourselves? Do we really need all these Latin-speaking priests to interpret everything for us and to give us access to heaven? Maybe there's other ways. And so that's that's like in in a nutshell what happened with the the Reformation. It was like the, the Protestants initially it was not an ism. Like it wasn't like 
a particular church. It was just people who were protesting the Catholic system. It's super interesting. So I, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but uh, for a while, I studied the history of Islam when I was in college. Um, I lived in Cairo for a while. And mm. there's a, a commonality, I think, in some ways is, I think this is a kind of across all faiths, but when faith systems turn into political systems and economic systems, you almost inevitably have a backlash at some point where people try to reclaim that relationship with God. And often that is sort of the narrative or moral dimension or spiritual dimension of uh, a larger question of the structure of power that has grown up around it, right? So in Islam, well, one, I mean, the religion itself was in some ways theoretically founded on that idea of having that direct relationship. But in particular, in the 12th and 13th century, the rise of Sufism and sort of ecstatic mysticism was their version of, uh, it's very different, obviously, than Protestantism, but it was still at core about reclaiming this relationship with God. But it's also probably no accident that by the 12th or 13th century in Islam, the power structure around the religion, the faith had gotten extremely dense and complex, and the place for the individual had gotten farther and farther away. Um, so it's interesting that in this case as well, there is this kind of, uh, there's an economic and, and sort of a political power dimension alongside a spiritual a spirituality dimension. Oh, it's interesting you say that because like I remember, I think from high school learning that like, oh, the schism in Islam was basically... A kind of like a hereditary dispute of like, you know, these guys said we are the true heirs to Muhammad and the, the other guys said, no, we are. Uh, but then what you're saying is that it was bound to happen anyway. Like there was this well, kind of. So that, that was a, that was a little bit different. That was the, the Sufi and Shiite split, which continues oh, to be the okay. most important in terms of the, the sort of descent into the modern political landscape uh, that that remains. And it was an issue of of hereditary uh, legitimacy. The, the part that I'm referring to, though, is that in kind of either side, there was a movement. This is so this is where like whirling dervishes come from, where basically this Sufism, which is uh, another version of this. This is sort of like the Kabbalah and Judaism. I mean, again, I'm not trying to overly draw these comparisons, but mm -hmm. they were reclaiming the idea that you were supposed to have a direct relationship with with God, and the way that they pursued that was in the form of sort of this ecstatic dance, you know, which is where we got the dervishes and stuff. But it was a it was a rejection of the the power structure and the power system in general. Um, but again, I, I think trying to, to to make the analogy a little bit more crisp, and I'm probably more crisp than it is. You had um, um, very uh, extensive and dense hierarchies of power and political systems by that point, you know, six or 700 years after the founding of Islam, that part of the rejection, I think, was not just the, uh, it, it wasn't just a, a, a spiritual revolution. It was also kind of an opt out of that type of system. Although with no, with no real political ambition on its own, which is why it stayed sort of a, a mystical movement as opposed to a political power. And obviously that wasn't exactly what happened with, uh, with Protestantism. It kind of like, you know, it kind of illustrates how almost all monopolies are the seed of their own destruction. It's kind of like, we have a great thing and like, let's make, you know, let's just dictate everything that happens. It's like, oh, well, no, it was a great thing. But, you know, once you guys start infiltrating all areas of our lives, like maybe we want to back off from that. And then there's the incumbents who, who, who start competing with that, which could just be like what you're referring to, like just some some people that aren't even organized, but that just choose to opt out anyway. Mm -hmm. 
No, I think it's a, I think it's a really really salient point, and at the risk of extending the uh, the Islamic historical analogy too long, if anyone's interested in this, they should look up the um, the history of this concept called ishtihad. And basically, there was a long period during which uh, Islamic jurisprudence, right? So the the nature of the law had a kind of a, a clear system. Stuff that was in the Quran was uh, was supreme. Obviously, if God said it, God said it. Stuff that Muhammad had taught was secondary to that, right? Because he had to fill in a lot of the gaps. And then after that, there was sort of this uh, this consensus among Islamic scholars. So things that that they could figure out on the basis of what Muhammad had said um, was was sort of the next in the the line of authority. But then after that, there was a concept called ishtihad, which is basically individual thought, rational thought, which said that everyone is possessed of the ability to make sense of uh, of things and where there aren't explicit teachings that fit in any of those other categories, use your own mind to, to figure it out. In the 12th century, there was actually an official uh, decree closing the door to Ishtahat that basically said everything relevant to be figured out has been figured out, which means we no longer mm-hmm. recognize the legitimacy of individuals to figure things out for themselves. And again, it wasn't, you know, it was within 100 or 200 years that uh, that Sufism and this sort of that, that type of rejection came. So really, really interesting and uh, definitely, I think, validating of your point that monopolies, whatever they are, kind of sow the seeds of their own destruction. That's fascinating. And, and it reminds me of, you know, how maybe the contrast between the French Napoleonic code and then the common law tradition in England, which common law uh, reminds me of Ishtahad a lot, a lot more, where there's this just just a broad tradition of, of um, precedence. And, and so judges are free to just look into uh, cases that came before and, and draw inspiration from that to make a ra- try to rationally figure out what's going on now, whereas Napoleonic law is much more rigid, generally speaking. And that's why international commerce hasn't really flourished based on that system. It's It's been much more, you know, even like Hong Kong, like, you know, any kind of system that traces back to common law is usually more, you know, flexible and and I think in the long run probably more just as well. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know if you've um if you've talked with Nick Carter recently uh, on his latest rant around squatters' rights on social media, but he's been digging into this concept of basically trying to pull, uh, you know, historical analogy from squatters' rights in the American West and um, in these tomahawk rules, where basically people would delineate their property on the basis of kind of you know marking it with uh with you know a tomahawk or whatever they use to to cut into a tree, an axe or whatever, and that later became sort of like the basis for how parcels were were divided but the the key thing here is that there was this um, determination of if people sort of commingled their labor with the land for a sufficient amount of time and you could demonstrate that it wasn't being used otherwise you could potentially have legal claim to it and a lot of you know the 18th or the the 19th century and early 20th century was about codifying that and kind of uh, recognizing legally and in it, you know with the full force of the law what was practically already the reality. So it's really interesting just to see how these systems of uh, of kind of control and, uh, and and legality form around or or kind of try to fight against common sense and uh, and sort of normalcy of how people live their lives. Wow, yeah, interesting. 
So let's let's talk. Uh, let's go back to the Reformation now that we've fully gone down the rabbit hole. And this is perfect because this episode is going to be released on a Friday, which means it's like they're going to be the perfect companion for weekend, uh, you know, relaxation and, and chill. But uh, I want to dig into some of these uh, these preconditions. So you kind of touched on all of them in your introduction to the situation, but um, you you identify four preconditions for Reformation and do a comparison like then versus now. So the first is rent seeking monopolistic service provider. The second is technological revolution catalyst for change. The third is a new economic class and people with something to fight for. And the fourth is credible strategies for defense and escape. Maybe we can go through those and and pull out the example of uh, within the the Protestant Reformation and then um, talk about what you see as kind of a a parallel now. Sure. Well, so yeah, the rent-seeking... Uh, monopolist back then was the Catholic Church. I think today it's it's the international financial system, which is a bit of a vague term. Uh, but but if you look into the, you know the 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 BIS and Basel, which is like the central bank of the central banks, they do have this term IMFS, International Monetary and Financial System, and it basically is this kind of web of central banks and then supra. Uh, national central banking institutions like the IMF and the BIS, like all that together. And in a way, also, the commercial banks are also tied into that, similar to how, you know, 500 years ago, the Catholic Church was also this like vast network that went all the way down to the smallest villages where there was also a priest and he was, you know, obeying the bishop and then the bishop was obeying and so forth, uh, this hierarchical system. And so, yeah, I mean, right now, of course, it's not about access into heaven, but it's more about access into financial heaven. <laughs> it's like, you know, who, who who's going to take care of your finances? It is the bank. And then who's going to backstop the bank if the bank gets in trouble? Well, it's the central bank and so on. You see this in, in with economists is that it's hard for them to think outside of this paradigm to imagine anything else than, than the fiat paradigm that everybody thinks in. And that's probably part of why they're so insulted often or, or, or get really triggered thinking and talking about something like Bitcoin, which defies a lot of the conventions of the past hundred years. Yeah, and I think this is a, a, a an important moment to hang on to before we move into the sort of technology revolution side. You know, a, a, one of the conversations that I'm having with lots of folks who are on the show is this sort of continued claim of Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve that central banks and specifically the Fed's policies haven't had any impact on wealth inequality, that it is somehow divorced from that uh, and has been happening you know, for 40 years separately and no one is really sure why. And almost everyone, frankly, whether they're a Bitcoiner or not, has a really hard time stomaching that when literally expressed goal is to create a wealth effect, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's this uh, website, WTF happened in 1971.com, which, you know, what, what that refers to is, is uh, President Nixon closing the gold window, so detethering the dollar from gold. And, and you see, just go to that page and you see so many statistics that all of a sudden start to deviate massively. And, 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 and that's the effect. I mean, it's basically, if you have a money printing machine in Washington, D.C. or wherever you want to imagine it, and then there is a, a small circle of um, people around it. And then kind of like concentrically, people are sitting around that money printing machine. And the people furthest away are, of course, the blue collar workers and the people with fixed pensions and stuff. And so that's how you see this like wealth disparity happen over the period of 40 years. And that's part of why we're seeing, you know, 
everything's connected. That's part of why we're seeing these riots, uh, because people are mad. They feel like something's wrong, that they're being stolen from. And they often have a hard time pinpointing, like, you know, why exactly that is. But it's no surprise, right? If, if the wealth disparity is at the extreme, that's when you get iconoclasm. That's when you get riots. That's when uh, you see revolutions happen. Yeah, I think it's so important to uh, not be dismissive of people's frustration and sense of uh, injustice and wrongness. Because when you are, what happens is that you have demagogues that fill the gap and explain it in easy terms that are often too easy politically. Uh, and I think we've been subject to that a lot. But okay, so so we've got this rent-seeking monopolistic service provider um, in the form of uh, you know the Catholic Church, then the international system as it's designed now. Technology revolution. What was the catalyst for change then, and what are some of them now? I mean, I, I think these are probably the the ones that people are most uh, innately familiar with. The, the major one, I think, was the printing press. Like that was just incredible. How this also enabled pseudonymous uh, publications. So not only were books a lot cheaper and pamphlets, but there were a lot of pamphlets that were circulated and nobody really knew who who even wrote them. Uh, so that was extra powerful as well. Uh, there was also double entry bookkeeping, which accelerated international commerce. All of a sudden, you could have uh, a multinational corporation and actually do the bookkeeping in a way that made sense. Uh, there were improvements to the compass, the hourglass, and that allowed for people to not only venture out thousands of miles away, but actually make it back. Because that was always, you know, it was the problem wasn't to discover new territory. The problem was to get back. And that's what these improvements helped and then uh, helped with. Of course, that was the age as well of, of scientific research and, and the first kind of successful experiments in chemistry. And so all kinds of improvements that would compound each other to really, uh, it's, it's a little bit like the internet, right? The, the rise of the internet, it just unlocked so many things that then compounded and accelerated. Um, and so I gave the comparison or the example of the price of a book falling from, you know, a year's wage to the price of a chicken. It actually, if you want to put that in numbers, it, it dropped by 2.4% per year for over 100 years. That's That was the price of books. Uh, but then similarly, the price of pushing digital data around the world has also dropped by over 99% in 20 years. So so that's, I think, a powerful analogy to look at the price of of disseminating information today. Like that's that's kind of cratered once more. And so that is a catalyst. It's a really powerful catalyst. Data storage is a lot cheaper, computation. Um, and of course, we have open source software, which means that the software itself is, is often free. And then cryptography is more on the defensive side, gives us all kinds of things to do. And then, you know, meme posting on Twitter is also serves a function. It's like it allows us to disseminate the information very rapidly. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro.
CypherTrace helps grow the crypto economy by making it trusted by governments and safe for consumers and investors. How do they do it? By protecting VASPs, banks, and other financial institutions from crypto laundering risks while protecting user privacy. Years of research have created the world's best cryptocurrency intelligence with the best attribution and deepest token coverage. So if your virtual asset business isn't using CypherTrace to manage compliance risks, you should start now. Learn more at CypherTrace.com. So we have a rent-seeking monopoly. Uh, we have a catalyst for change and technology revolution. Who is the new economic class uh, with something to fight for in each of these situations? Yeah. So in the past, it, it would be the the merchants because uh, they they were the ones acquiring wealth and and they would also encounter these new cultures and that brought kind of a a sense of empowerment with them. The fact that they're just free to just travel around the world and and uh, and fund these expeditions, so I would definitely say it's it's the it, it was the merchant class. And sorry, but don't forget back then, one of the things that the, all this travel allowed for the basically the price of travel was dropping, and so that allowed for specialization. So you had you know for example where I'm from in Bruges, there was a a, a bird like a massive industry around um textile like very special specific textiles that were unique in Europe and and uh there was a center for painting and so basically you you had the possibility for specialists from all over Europe to congregate in particular cities um and so today i mean in the report i talk about the millennial generation in general i think that's probably a bit too broad but i didn't want to you know, I didn't want to have a million footnotes in this report. So so I did say the millennial generation, because they're skeptical about traditional finance, they're enthusiastic about digital innovation, things like that. But, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. And it's actually a more narrow category. Like maybe it's the Bitcoiners, right? Maybe because they are the ones who actually have that link to self-sovereignty and that ability to almost entirely live in the cloud, but let's say, like, I think that it's going to be a part of the millennial generation that will play that role. There's almost a spear tip effect with folks like the Bitcoiners, right, in terms of where they fit. But I, I don't think it's necessarily, especially if we're zooming out in the kind of multi-hundred year time frame, like of, of history, to identify the millennial generation as a whole. Especially if you look at, like, there's this really interesting phenomenon where we're one of the first... Uh, generations in history, so far as I can tell, that are natively better at the most important tools of uh, economic production of their age. Right? This is the the millennial generation was the pivot from uh, from digitally native to not. Right? It was the the group. It's the last group ever, at least the oldest part, which I'm a, kind of a part of the older part of the millennial generation, to remember ever writing anything by hand in school. You know, that's kind of a, an, an artifact now. Writing a school report, and obviously the Zoomers are. You know they. They can't imagine a world without this because they were born in many cases after Napster, you know. And so it's this interesting inflection point where you know they're natively better as a generation at the tools of of kind of economic production in terms of coding and everything else, but they own none of the wealth comparatively, right? If you look at where and there's been a, a number of great tweet threads and and articles about this in the last you know few weeks especially, but if you look at the percentage of wealth owned by millennials now as compared to uh, as compared to the boomers at the same age, it's just it, it's I mean it's mind-boggling, right? It's something like twenty-two percent for the boomers compared to three percent for millennials. Uh, 
And that's you repeat that across every category. So even though this ten, this generation has theoretically all the tools to be really empowered economically, it's actually radically far behind. And now you have this generation that's coming into their 30s or even looking at their late 30s and saying, you know, we don't have the things that my parents had at that time. We don't have a house. We don't have any possibility of getting a house, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a real uh, discontent and, and frustration there. And again, people diagnose it a lot of different ways, but I don't think it's wrong that there's that this whole group of people have something to fight for, right? If that's if that's the real qualification that we're looking at. Yeah, I mean, the millennial generation has been a victim of this rent-seeking effect of um, of the financial system, where the chickens are coming to roost. Like this whole artificially inflated activity uh, that's been possible because of that debt accumulation over over I guess almost a hundred years. Debts have been on the increase. You know, now that that's failing, like the millennials are catching the brunt of that that problem, whereas the older generation. They were able to profit from it, and they have, uh, you know, juicy four hundred one ks and so on. And so, I think, yeah, it is dangerous that the millennials don't have a lot to lose as a generation. And so, you know, things could get really ugly in, in that sense. I mean, that's what happened during the French Revolution with the the sans culottes, which was the the nobility were the ones. If you look at the the paintings of the time, they had these like shorts, these kind of like aristocratic short pants. And so then um, the the working class, they would self-identify as the ones who were not wearing shorts. So that's the sans-culottes. And uh, it was just a really violent, um, I mean, of course, not everyone who was working class became violent, but there was a, sub, a subsection that really took it very far. And, 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 you know, there was just a lot of destruction of buildings. And, uh, and of course, in the French Revolution, it was beheadings and, and all that ugly stuff. So yeah, I mean, it is it is really a, a big problem. I do think that it's not, you know, the older generation is not going to keep their relative share of the wealth. Like mm-hmm. it, part of it is going to be transferred via inheritance, but also um, the technology is a bigger part of the economic pie than it used to be. And you're already seeing that if you look at the top 100 billionaires in the world, half of them have a significant part of their wealth thanks to investments or involvement in technology. And so, you know, add to that a Bitcoin revolution where Bitcoin does another 10 or 100x and you could really see half the world's billionaires uh, deriving a significant part of their wealth from Bitcoin. And so very likely they they will be younger than than just because they were involved at a, a younger age. Like most older people don't get Bitcoin as quickly. Yeah, I do think it's important to like we can acknowledge when there are uh, numbers that show that something off without presuming that it's going to be that way forever, you know. And it and it the I think the relevant piece when it comes to millennials for for your point is right now, even if that uh, that redistributive effect is you know coming down the pipe, right? There's a million scenarios that you can game out where that would happen, right? Like housing crisis, you know, because all of a sudden if the stock market turns over, these boomers have to sell their second houses, right? And all of a sudden, there's a glut of availability rather than a supply shortage, which there's been for for many years, and so on and so forth, right? We can game out all these scenarios. I think that the important thing in terms of understanding this precondition for something big to happen is that right now, in this moment, it feels far away, and it would take something it feels like dramatic to actually do it, um, or, or to, to have some some shift happen. 
So the last piece or the last part of these preconditions is this idea of credible strategies for defense and escape. Can you talk a little bit about that in the, the context of the Reformation and, and, and now? Yeah, sure, sure. So back back in the day, in, in the 1500s, um, the, the kind of government arm of the Catholic Church uh, was, you know, there were several kings, of course, across Europe who were very loyal to the Catholic Church. But the biggest empire at the time was the Spanish Empire. And the Spanish kings, they really, you know, they were really seeing themselves as like God on earth and, and, and you know, nobody should question uh, their authority. And, and there were horrible atrocities that happened in Spain at the time. I mean, the prosecution of the Jews and just just really horrible, um, horrible events took place. Uh, but so they um, had this idea that they had this colonial empire. And then also, they were going to uh, just annex a significant part of Europe. And they did that with, uh, there was this whole marriage strategy where they would marry strategically and and then get claims on particular lands and territories uh, across Europe and then they would also impose their their kind of you know hyper catholic reign there and so they tried to push for annexing the Netherlands and they tried for 80 years and it was you know it basically made them broke um they they there was this massive army that trekked across land all the way to the Netherlands and so you would think like tiny little Netherlands with a lot of land that was actually claimed on the ocean, that wasn't even real land to begin with, how could they ever withstand the biggest empire in the world at the time? Uh, but they did it. And, and one of the main ways they did it was by using water to their advantage. So they, they had these dikes and they could, they could break the dikes whenever there was um, an army coming for the city um, they could just flood the fields and then all of a sudden all these Spanish soldiers with, with armor and they would just get stuck in the mud and, uh, and then they would be easy prey for, for defenders. So that was just a massively important part of the defense. And, and it's kind of like out of left field, like it was like not really expected. Um, and then Amsterdam was, was really the heart and it, it was surrounded by these rings of, um, water defenses and, and fortresses that were strategically placed to communicate quickly and those kind of things. So yeah, water was just um, the, the, the secret sauce of, uh, of the Dutch. And uh, so today, the argument that I try to make in this report, I, I think it's cryptography. I think it's one of those things that changes the playing field um, drastically because with very few resources, you can build something that's almost impenetrable. Um, that's kind of the point, right? If you're, you're up and coming and you're kind of, you have a newfound wealth and you want to keep doing what you're doing, then you want a technology that allows you to cheaply and effectively defend yourself. And, um, and I think, you know, in combination with, you know, the fact that there's, that it's open source, uh, available and, and, uh, that, that it's part of, uh, an ecosystem of solutions, I would say cryptography is, is, uh, our best chance or the best chance for this millennial generation to, um, to, to take that risk. And, and I added as well that water was not only a defense against a direct attack, but it was basically a gateway to escape. Like you could, you could, you know, jump in a boat and, and go to England or, or go to new Amsterdam across, across the ocean. Um, and so similarly, um, you know, if you want to move, 
to another country, uh, cryptography and Bitcoin allows you to do that in a way that is um, where it's hard to be stopped unless you're being imprisoned. It's super interesting. I mean, I think about this a lot. I mean, how have you been paying attention to sort of the, the low grade assault of the attorney general on end to end encryption? I mean, is this something that worries you as you watch? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like the counter reformation where, you know, the Catholic Church is trying to push back and challenge uh, these strategies. I mean, ultimately, it's doomed to fail, but in the short term, it, it can it can wreak some havoc. What ends up happening is that the market is smart, and so these these measures to try and control it tend to only harden the the existing solutions because it's kind of like a it's like a it's like an it's like a test, right? Whoever tries to attack you, if if you're strong enough and you survive, then your immune system is stronger. And so, similarly, the Spanish Empire really tried to control uh, ocean trade uh, harshly. And uh, but then the irony was that in order to fund that control, they had to tax their own merchant fleet, and so then that fleet became weaker and weaker. But that was the income for the Spanish Empire itself. So they were kind of, you know, killing the goose with the golden eggs. Uh, and then, of course, who flourished was uh, the Dutch and and the British, who who just had a a much more capitalistic system. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't know how exactly, but I think, you know, these these attempts to control are likely going to backfire. It's kind of like with the stable coins, right? They've been really trying to crack down and, and control the stable coins. And, uh, and I'm not saying that Tether is going to survive in the long run, but part of what why Tether has this market dominance is that it's um, it's not controlled. It's the least controlled by, let's say, you know, the U.S. government, whereas, you know, uh, this, the stable coin by Circle or by Coinbase or, you know, these other ones, they're just born and grown in the U.S. And that's why the international market is skeptical of them, whereas Tether is this kind of pirate coin um, that is offshore and there's a lot more appetite for that. So I think that that might be an analogy where there's this kind of it backfires. If you try and control something too harshly, it happened with Portugal and Spain as well, you end up losing access to the market. You're like disqualifying yourself in the long run. Well, it's interesting. I mean, certainly the um, what we've seen with stablecoins in general, but Tether specifically uh, over the last few months during this COVID crisis is uh, is huge, huge uptick, right, in usage, and probably for exactly this reason because you know we have a situation where governments are likely to impose increasing currency controls, right? Argentina has increased its currency controls over the last couple of months, for example, around uh, you know dollar access versus the peso and things like that. And that is driving people into the arms of these sort of synthetic dollar equivalents, especially the ones that seem less likely to be captured by government interest. And one of the one of the interesting things that I, I you know, this is a little bit off uh, off the the kind of narrative that we're plowing through, but it's still worth it, is what your take on. Um, so I'm really interested in 
the inevitability of a shift in kind of national fiat regimes as the norm. And and what I what I think about is, you know, so I, I've spent a lot of time watching Lebanon over the last few months, um, even before the COVID crisis, because you started to see last year, uh, you know, a peg that had been in place since the late '90s of uh, roughly 1,500 Lebanese pounds to um, to the dollar start to break. And as it broke, kind of the classic things that always happen in these situations happen where uh, the controls become more strict. The official exchange rate is totally different from the black market exchange rate. The black market exchange rate becomes more powerful. Uh, certain types of issues like you know, in a net importer country, all of a sudden you can't afford gas because gas has to pay for you know the imports in dollars, but then it sells in, in, uh, in Lebanese pounds and so on and so forth. And, um, and you see this incredible frustration and despair. There was a, a, a journalist, a Lebanese journalist who's based in Beirut, who works with AP and a number of other places, uh, who is lamenting that she's worked so hard for more than a decade and has just watched mm-hmm. her savings evaporate. And she's been punished for, for, she's been punished for her decision not to exert that physical mobility to leave. And the interesting thing for me is how how could it possibly be that in a world of network effects with you know an entire generation around the world of of digital native and digitally literate uh people how wouldn't you see money flee to a different uh to a different area right from a local currency regime it just feels like it's going to be an impossible force to stop in some ways but i'm interested in your take on that yeah i mean capital controls always fail but they can make people's lives really difficult in, in the short term. Uh, like, yeah, like, I mean, you mentioned uh, Argentina. They just had so many. Every 10 years, they have, like, their own currency crisis. And they mm-hmm. they always try these terrible recipes. I guess the U.S. is a little bit of a special case because it's still this global currency so far. I think it's a lot harder for smaller countries where you kind of get choked out a lot faster by the international markets who are just calling bluff on, you know, your peg. It's like, (laughs) we don't care about your peg, right? We're just going to trade. And if we don't think this currency is worth much, we're not going to pay much for it. Uh, So it's kind of weird how these countries really, you know, it's, 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 I think it has to do with that political cycles and economic cycles are never really in sync. Like a political cycle is a lot faster right it's like the four-year election cycle or whatever so the politician in charge he's just thinking about his re-election that's all he cares about and so for him to then enact this crazy policy that's de facto choking the entire economy because if you peg it like think about what a peg means it's basically saying like i mandate that this coin is worth so much which is nonsense right it just means that you as a central bank maybe you will pay up a certain amount of foreign currency to to keep that myth going. But eventually the story breaks down, uh, but then you forced all the participants in your economy, all the official, the businesses and stuff to adhere to this value of that, of the overvaluation basically. And so that's mm-hmm. why eventually international providers just start saying like, dude, like I, you know, I don't care that your government says that gasoline is, is worth, this many Lebanese coins, I, you know, I, I don't care about the Lebanese coin. I just want enough money. And so they just stop shipping the goods into Lebanon. And then it's, but it's, it's horrible. It, it really is very horrible. Like people literally die because of these situations. They don't get the right medical care. They don't get medication. They don't get gasoline. They can't heat their homes. 
the only silver lining is that, you know, politically it's not sustainable in the long run. So usually these things only last, you know, anywhere between 12 months and three years, these kind of currency controls. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to talk about because we're going to see it more and more. Yeah, I mean, we could spend the whole 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 conversation on just that, but for the sake of kind of finishing this uh, this this analogy, because uh, you know, I think it's such a, a great, interesting lens. Um, another piece that you draw the comparison to is the idea of unifying doctrines. Um, can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, a doctrine is there's like a belief system, which is like all the beliefs that are alive in a certain culture you could say and then like the doctrines are more like the the pithy summaries of that and then within the, the doctrines means. well yeah but I, I would say within the doctrines there's even the like a subcategory of like yeah the the more um i'm trying to find i think there's another word even uh but like yeah i mean like the you know the the ten commandments is an example like there's just kind of like the elevator pitch of the whole belief system. Mm-hmm. And so back then, sola fide was one. It's like faith alone is, is what, what is enough. Faith alone is enough to get you into heaven. You don't need these priests. Or uh, sola scriptura, which was scripture alone. Like So you can have a direct relationship with God by studying the Bible yourself in your own language. And so that's why you know, I think it's important not to dismiss the power of this and to also look at what's alive today in the Bitcoin community. And so we have, you know, Vires in numeris, which is strength in numbers. There is don't trust verify. So it's like really emphasizing that that self, um, self uh, sovereignty, the autonomy. There's HODL, there's not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So all these memes are making it very clear to even newcomers what this is all about, right? It's about claiming your own uh, individual sovereignty. And I think that's really powerful and, and it's working. It's interesting. One of the ones that I, you know, I obviously think about narratives and memes a lot. And uh, I, I think one thing that Bitcoin does is it's constantly testing new memes, right? It's trying to see, and this I think is not a, or it shouldn't be mistaken as a um, casting around for new narratives so much as a trying to help simplify people's understanding on the basis of, of connecting with a wider world and a context of a wider world. So by way of example, one that uh, has been coming up more recently for the last couple of months is this sort of fix the money, fix the world idea. You're seeing that a lot. Marty Bent is a big uh, proponent of this meme. And like all memes, like all of these slogans, it's obviously radically oversimplified, but it really locates very quickly the stakes that the Bitcoiners who are using that are trying to bring to the conversation about uh, economics. And that's very different than the stakes of a lot of other folks, you know? And so if you're someone who's outside the community and trying to identify what it's about, you have very quickly, just if you've heard that that a, uh, you, maybe you don't buy it yet, right? You're going to have to convince me that if we fix the money, we fix the world. But at least all of a sudden, we're having a very different conversation than, you know, a payments technology or something like that. Yeah. And, and I think it's no coincidence that a lot of the, you know, shit coins and scam coins never really came up with memes that that went very far or that really were very sticky. Uh, like it's more like a corporate slogan that's a bit hollow. And, uh, and of course, I knowing myself i i can't drop the chance to take a stab at ethereum and and you know making the claim that buidle wasn't the greatest meme <laughs> i don't know if you agree but um 
I don't know. I just think it's interesting. It doesn't mean that that we're right, right? It doesn't mean that Bitcoiners are right because we have better memes, but at least it's it's a data point. It's something to think about. It's like, why is it that Bitcoiners' memes are so much more sticky than some of these altcoins? I, I think there's a bunch of reasons for that, but I think that a lot of it has to do with the the settling in of sort of narrative market fit in some ways for Bitcoin or just kind of a, you know, I, I think one thing that makes it interesting is that you are, you are not required to buy any of this we're talking about on this podcast or any other podcast to be interested in holding it, right? It can be schmuck insurance for you like it is for someone like Chamath, you know, it, it's, it's one of the things that makes it great. But it does have a a home team i'd almost describe that have this sort of shared set of uh, uh, of kind of ways of seeing the world that are are kind of highly resonant and, and i think particularly contextual for now and i think that good memes emanate from real solid foundations right you can't kind of just have a marketing meeting and come up with them it has to be from something um, and so you know it's hard if there's if there's not that that clarity of what uh, what a project is is trying to accomplish in some way so i think inevitably all of the, especially kind of like a young coin that just pops up. It's like, you're not going to have, you don't have sufficient narrative power to memify that, you know, like all, what you have is it's fine to have slogans. It's fine to have marketing if you're trying to capture market share and, and interest, but that's different. Yeah. And it's hard to come up with a meme that doesn't already apply to Bitcoin, which again, shows how strong that network effect is. Like it kind of like sucks the entire narrative towards it because because it is a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, like we can do all these things on the Bitcoin platform. And so you're kind of, if you have a new coin, you're kind of forced to to try and stay out of Bitcoin's orbit by having a new narrative. But really, yeah, it's really the question, like, what is that going to be? Yeah, I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see, <laughs> well... To the extent that this sort of surge or recent reemergence or resurge around DeFi is uh, is sticky, it'll be interesting to see if memes come out of that. I actually said on Twitter the other day, which did not get a lot of likes, but it was either because people didn't like it or because it was like 6.30 in the morning, either are possible. Um, but I was like, you know, listen, you guys should try to reclaim financial engineering. You know, uh, that was a, a term that has become an absolute four letter dirty word, you know, when it comes to Wall Street, but uh, only because they're trying to be proper. And a lot of the folks there are absolutely obsessed with, uh, you know, really novel, interesting financial engineering. Maybe you can, mm. maybe you can call it permissionless financial engineering or something. But like I said, that that did not get resonance, and maybe that's me just not not getting it. But um, you know, <laughs> it could be that it's just not the time yet, right? Maybe it needs yeah. another five years. Well, that's. I mean, that's. I, I think one of the things, one of the problems when. So I actually think and this again a little tangential, but my argument about DeFi has been for a while that I think the folks who are most committed to and excited about it should be absolutely thrilled that it has been able to develop outside of the context of uh, big flows of capital from people who don't get it and are just there for the speculation game, because what it's giving it is space to become whatever it's going to become, you know, whether that's something or nothing or some possibility in between without the kind of uh, that just, I mean, 
any idea of merit that had any sort of token around it in 2017, 2018 has just been burned into the ground, right? By the the way that ICOs and tokens happened. And um, and DeFi so far hasn't suffered that. I, you know, I think I'm always skeptical when people are really pushing for sort of mainstreaming of this because these are incredibly complex, again, financially engineered instruments that could produce some really fascinating things. But right now it's it's a playground for people who mostly know the risks and aren't going to screw their lives up because of it. And that's, uh, you know, to the extent that there's going to be a real real there, if I'm them, I I, I want to fight away the outside hordes for as long as I can while that becomes real, you know? Well, it also raises the question of like, you know, how much of this stuff do you really need to try out with real money? And like, to what extent can't you just work on uh, kind of, you know, a bit more of the Bitcoin tradition where you just test, test, test very rigorously in a testnet environment? I just feel like it, it often speaks to the, the motivation, like it kind of reveals the motivation of the founders. Like, are you trying to build something for the long term? Are are you trying to make money right now? And uh, and I think mm-hmm. the one excludes often the other. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see. Definitely, you know, if things go wrong, the forensics are gonna are gonna be really interesting to see. Um, okay, so let's let's round out this uh, this kind of historical analogy. So two two parts, and maybe you can take this however you want. But but one the the kind of last part about the Reformation argument or, or analogy was the financial economy during a Reformation and some parallels you saw there in terms of deposit banking, enterprise insurance, liquid collateral, access to capital. Um, so we can we can talk about that and that'd be great. But then also, I know you've been looking more into this sort of uh, period around the French Revolution. And I'd love to see what, you know, you haven't fully crystallized those ideas, but what is the inspiration you've been drawing from that, from that moment in history? Yeah. So, um, this is like going back 10 years ago, I, I read this little book by Alfred uh, Dixon White. He's uh, the, uh, I think he's the co-founder of Yale University. Let me actually uh, look it up real quick. Oh no, Cornell. He's the, Andrew Dixon White. He's the founder of Cornell University. So he wrote this little book in 1915 called Fiat Money Inflation in France. And, uh, and it's this interesting take on the French Revolution where he really focuses on the monetary policy and, and the political debate around uh, the debt situation of the time and so on. Um, and and so I wrote this article in Dutch 10 years ago, which was called um, The Most Important History Lesson You Were Never Taught. And it was basically about how if, if governments accumulate debt to a level where it's unsustainable, eventually uh, that can lead to hyperinflation. And so back then I thought it was scary, but now... I'm even more scared because the analogies are just, I think, piling up. Uh, like not only is there this multi-decade history of, of you know, the, the debt um, ramping up and also that being done in, in a, what's considered to be a very robust political system. Like France was a powerful nation. France was very reputable all, you know, among Europe and uh, was considered to be very credit worthy. Uh, but so that was true until it wasn't. And then the French revolution was just this incredible part of my French, but show it was just, you know, horrible. And that's what scares me looking at, you know, looking at the U S uh, you know, there's also these examples of, for example, um, uh, the, 
Minister of Finance, uh, Mr. Necker, he was well connected in the financial circles of, of the 18th century. And he wrote this report on the, uh, the financials of the French government. And he was basically saying that everything was great and, and that France was very credit worthy. And based on that, he was able to raise more and more debt from uh, emperors across Europe. But of course, eventually, the, you know, they, they called them bluff. Um, and, and one of the other things that really strikes me as a parallel is just that um, this transition from initially when the idea comes to print money to solve a crisis, initially there's a lot of uh, debate about it and there's a lot of politicians that don't agree with it and that are saying this is scandalous and horrible. So that also happened in, in, you know, in France in the, the 1780s. Uh, but then that change to eventually was not about should we bail out? It was just about how much and how quickly. And that is what I see uh, is the difference between the 2008 debates about the bailouts, which was a lot of people were actually against bailouts altogether versus today. There wasn't even a question about whether to bail out. It was just a matter of like how quickly and how much. And so that, you know, I can read you a little passage if you want from the book that, that kind of shows this. Yeah, absolutely. So here's, here's the first one. So the first, the first result of this issue was apparently all that the most sanguine could desire. The treasury was at once greatly relieved. A portion of the public debt was paid. Creditors were encouraged. Credit revived. Ordinary expenses were met. And a considerable part of this paper money, having thus been passed from the government into the hands of the people, trade increased and all difficulties seemed to vanish. So that's basically the 1780s, the first issuance of the Asignas, which a lot of people don't know, but they were actually government bonds initially. They were not, you know, this paper money from day one. They were really government bonds. And so then they, they kind of resolved this crisis, but then quickly uh, there were new problems coming up and there was a call just for more more bailouts. Um, and um, let's see if it, there's another quote here. Um, yeah, for example, like one of the main politicians who was very famous back then was Count Mirabeau. And so, he, for example, in Congress, he said, you know, the second time around, he's like, we must accomplish what we have begun. And he said that we need another large issue of paper and that it's going to be guaranteed by the national lands of the church that we confiscated and by the good faith of the French nation. So, so, and he was known to be a hawk before, like he was known to be extremely skeptical of money printing, but they just turned 180. And I, I feel like literally the same thing, like there's the same people who were against the bailouts in 2008 are now just clamoring for another trillion and another trillion. And that is just really scary to me. It's, it's scary. And, and I'm not saying hyperinflation will happen, but I think it's, it's a significant risk and it's weirdly something that will happen in the countries that are often the strongest, like Germany in the 20s was actually, sorry, in the 1910s was actually considered to be very credit worthy and a strong economy. And that's part of why they just went so far. You know, they just have this delusion that they can get away with it. And that's often the what's so dangerous. So that's that's my worry about the United States is that among, you know, Capitol Hill politicians, there's this delusion that they can get away with anything forever. 
Well, and I think it's uh, exacerbated by this sort of there is no alternative argument. And I'm interested in your take on this. You know, the folks who are not worried about this are um, are, are uh, will either point to the idea that if you own your own debt, it's different, or they'll point to the the fact that uh, the system is so entwined with uh, with U.S. dollars at the center of it that it just there's incredible sort of deflationary pressure combating this. I mean, how do you see these other? You know, we, we've we've seen this story play out where we print a ton of money and we see the money supply go up and nothing happens. What's your take on those countervailing pressures? Do you think it's the same sort of thing where it works it till it doesn't, or is it is it more complex than that? Yeah, it's exactly that. It works until it doesn't. Um, you know, it's kind of like with bankruptcy; like it, it happens extremely slowly and then all at once. So, so those are all just different ways to say the same thing. Um, and of course, it's important to to keep in mind that it's not like these money printing. Uh, ventures have had no effect on the economy. I mean, we've seen um, one bubble after the other in, in the, the 20th century. And now, arguably, we've been in the everything bubble. Like, at least before, it was somehow identifiable where there was the dot-com bubble and the real estate bubble, whereas now it's like everything was bubbling, including bonds and stocks. And um, all the financial markets were bubbling up, which is why the wealthy are getting so much wealthier. Um, but then, if you look at just a very simple living expenses. Um, if you look at living expenses in, in regular cities in the U.S., the past five years, they've, they've gone up with 10% every year. Um, that's just verifiable. If you, if you calculate the CPI inflation, which is a consumer price index inflation, if you use the, the older methods that the governments used to use in the 80s, because right now it's very opaque. We don't know what the government is using to calculate their own inflation. And, and there's a huge incentive to underreport inflation, of course. But if you look at, you know, shadowstats.com, for example, they also are seeing uh, 10% inflation is basically what they're seeing in consumer price products annually. So that's, you know, think about it, like 10% inflation. That means that if you earn the same wage for five years in a row, by the time you hit year five, you're probably talking about, I would have to calculate, but maybe like 35% lower inflation corrected wages. So that's really not nothing at all or, or pensioners that have a fixed pension or you know you name it. So if the official inflation is underreported by 7%, that's a massive has massive impact on the economy. And so to me, I'm more talking about I think we'll jump from 10% to 50. If you do 10% 10 years in a row and then you jump to 50, that's not surprising to me, but a lot of people think that we've been at 1 or 2 or 3% inflation and so they think it's crazy that all of a sudden we might have 50%. Well, and I think too that it's important that you bring up like how we calculate these things and then how we sort of spin the narrative of them matters too, right? I mean, you we're in a, a context where undeniably labor share of capital is lower than it's been ever, you know, and has been sustained there for a long time. And for 20 years, Buffett, for example, was warning about this and said he didn't think it was sustainable. And, and, you know, take, you know, it's almost like throw a dartboard at your pick of where people's real lives are impacted, right? Screw 
the screw the sort of officially reported consumer price index, it, we come back to where we started with this sense of something being fundamentally off and people getting farther and farther behind. And you have uh, economists on the right, left, and center who who come to the same sort of place with it, uh, even if they have completely different remediation for it. Um, so I think it's a really salient point. But I guess maybe to, uh, by way of kind of wrapping up uh, on a a theoretically optimistic note, you had a tweet uh, a little while ago that said uh, that that maybe that posited that could could the millennials, uh, in spite of themselves, in spite of our participation trophies and whatever other critique gets lobbed at us, um, end up the next greatest generation? And basically what you point to uh, is uh, this series of crashes and and sort of rough experiences we've lived through. So a 2001 crash, 2008 crash, a 2020 crash and depression, and then you said next inflation, social unrest, etc. Um, tell what, what do you think? I mean, if, if we make it through this, or, or, or could we could we actually come out stronger? Yeah, or, or definitely Generation Z, right? Maybe, maybe it's yeah. like too late maybe for it's, us. Maybe it's too late for us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and at least we can, you know, we can we can uh, we can support them, and and maybe we'll have like you know our our, our shield with the banner of the avocado toast that's going to be like you know our, <laughs> our, our defiant our signal sigil. to the others. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean. So, but I, I do think like hardship does make people think and it makes, makes people question paradigms that they've been spoon fed since they were born. Uh, and so if anything, I, I really do think our, our generation and, uh, has been challenged in many ways. Like right now, I, I'm surprised, for example, at the extent to which higher education is, is being challenged today. Like I always thought I was going to be forever marginalized with my like, uh, grumblings and, and misgivings about the university systems. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion about that now. And uh, I mean, people talk about, not that I'm advocating for that, but like just who could have thought five years ago that there'll be this uh, popular slogan to defund the police. <laughs> it's like, what? Like what kind of world are we living in that, that so many things are being questioned? So I think that in the short run that that means – I think a lot of people are not very well emotionally regulated. Like they, they kind of have trouble staying calm and reasonable. And so I think that means that we will see more unrest and more chaos in the next five to 10 years. But I do think in the long run, it will, and it won't be, it won't be equally around the world, but there will be places where significant changes and paradigm shifts happen and where it'll be incredibly exciting to live and to to just see that a lot of ideas that were extremely marginal for you know most of our lives even until today will find like a new forum and a new audience and maybe we'll just become part of the curriculum like it might not even be the same universities maybe we'll have a new generation of uh, educational institutions or teachers and then uh, these new things can be taught or we can revive some old ideas that were actually pretty good that got dusted under. That is kind of the big the big picture that makes me excited to think that, you know, intellectual work today may actually be extremely rewarding uh, because, you know, the, we're now in the seven meager years and there might be uh, a couple decades of, of very fat and and fertile intellectual um, decades ahead. Well, that is a perfect note to end on. Uh, I could spend all day talking about historical analogies and stuff, but I think that's a really great capstone to the conversation. Tur, thanks so much for hanging out today. We'll uh, definitely have to do this again with uh, as we, we reveal more about the own history that we're living through.
Yeah, let's go prep our avocado toast. All right. With my appetite. Perfect. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I said in the intro that I really believe that the key theme of this conversation is the idea that monopolies always sow the seeds of their own destruction. And I think that that's true. I think that we've seen it play out over and over again. Whenever power gets calcified, and instead of trying to innovate and improve the lives of people who interact with it, and instead tries to suppress people who would dissent from it, it sows the seeds of revolution and foment that eventually turn it over and create something new. This plays out in both political and business cycles, and obviously it doesn't take a savant to see that we're living through a radical moment right now. What's less clear is which of the alternatives being presented right now, and there are some radically different alternatives being presented right now, will actually fit this moment in the right way. This really is, I think, one of the most interesting and important questions of our time. But with that, guys, I will close for now. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.